Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. If there's anything parenting has taught me, it's how often I feel completely out of my comfort zone and inadequate at raising a human being. You know, you have your expectation and then there's sort of the reality of what you're able to actually produce as a parent. You're, at, you're in control of nothing and oftentimes you can feel miserable. But to guard against misery, what do we usually do? Well, I can be in misery or I can just kind of laugh at myself and kind of find some humor in it. And that's oftentimes what we do, right? The, the expectation versus reality. You know, it can be painful, or again, we can laugh at it. And there's a TV show called Nailed It on Netflix that has just this, right? There is sort of the iconic kind of professional way of like kind of making that perfect cake for the shower, you know, right? And then there's a bunch of like, you know, people who don't know the left hand from the right hand who get into the kitchen, and they try to reproduce the same thing, and it looks like this. It looks like someone was melting a cat cake in the sun all afternoon, right? And that's probably what I would make there on the right, because this is me. Like, if I try to do something, like, my wife will, like, kind of say, hey, I'm going to have you make dinner, and here's the instructions of one, two, three, four, and I somehow end up burning the cheese quesadilla. Like, that's just kind of the way that it goes for me. There's other places, right? We have other expectations. I mean, there's some people that are legitimately expecting that there's going to be a zombie apocalypse. There's some virus that's going to overtake all of us, and we will be transformed into bloodthirsty, brain-hungry, somewhat half-human beings, right? And there's people that are training in boot camp in order to have their moment of glory when this imminent doom comes. But the thing is that the zombie apocalypse has already come. It looks like this. They're called teenagers. I have three emerging right now. They are zombies. You're like, that just is not as exciting to prepare for as that zombie apocalypse right there. I'm middle-aged now. Middle-aged comes middle-aged body, trying to hold it all together, trying to suck it in. Uh, Alan and I were just talking about this. I'm kind of getting, getting a little more chunky around the midsection. What is it? What is the thing that you tie around your, your that, that belt that sort of sucks it in for you, right? I can't remember what it's called, but... Um, you know, you get on the new fitness plan, the new fitness program, and you, you're like, man, I'm going to look my best. And yet, we still look like Dwight Schrute. I mean, you might feel like you look like Jim Kranzig there on the left after your Peloton workout, but you look in the mirror, and that's what you look like. And you're like, why does it continue to look like this? I'm putting in so much work, right? Well, that's what it's like, right? We have expectation, and then there's reality. And as human beings, we cannot escape the fact that we have expectations, we need them because we need hope, right? We have to hope in something, some sort of future that directs our path of how to live, that marks our choices, and something that we're hoping, some promise that we're hoping will be fulfilled. And God knows this. He's made us this way. He's made us to be people to have expectations, to have hopes. And the scriptures, the Bible, is full of the promises of God. Because he wants us to have expectations. But the question is, do we have the right expectations? Because when we have the wrong expectation about our spiritual life, 
those expectations aren't met, oftentimes that can unwind to us, unwind for us. It can lead to disappointment. You can say this, disappointment lends to, uh, to disillusionment, while fulfilled promises lend to joy. So disappointment lends to disillusionment. I put my hope in this thing, I put my effort into this thing, I'm walking this thing out, I'm expecting God to do this thing in my life, and it doesn't come out, and I can either become bitter, or I kind of become more probably apathetic, because I'm disillusioned. It's not working the way I uh, intended it to be. But God intends for us to experience fulfilled promises. When we have promises that are fulfilled, it actually produces happiness and joy in our heart and our life. And so what Malachi is writing to is he's writing to God's people at a time of great disillusionment for them, great disappointment. Here's kind of the setup. We're not, we're not there yet, Anne. Give me a second, then, I'll, then, we'll, then we'll read this. So what's going on is that Israel in the Old Testament is God's people, and from the very beginning, God chose Israel, and he brought them in. He's like, hey, you are my treasure possession. You are my chosen people. Israel was held captive, held captive in Egypt. God miraculously saved them from slavery, brought them up out of Egypt, and he promised them a promised land, a place of abundance to be able to settle in, to be able to make a home for themselves, to be able to make a nation that would faithfully follow him. And then he, in turn, would continue to protect and provide and bless them, to prosper them. And that was the setup. But there was a stipulation that they were to maintain faithfulness in this, what's called the covenant relationship. That they would honor God, that they would live for him, that they would obey him, and he, in turn, would fulfill his promises to them. Well, the problem is, if you actually read through the Old Testament, you'll come to find out that Israel really struggled over and over and over again with maintaining covenant faithfulness. They continued to chase after other gods, other idols. You know, they did not live up to or fulfill the commands of God. And so because of this, and after a lot of warnings, God said, I'm going to take away this possession, this land from you. I'm going to remove it from you. And finally, he does. They're removed from the land, and they're brought to a, a nation called Babylon. And all that's left is ruins, and they're now transported out of the land. And this is kind of the setup, right? God now has removed them from the land. Seventy years later, he then brings them back. And he had promised this too. In the midst of saying, hey, I'm going to take the land, he said, hey, I'll eventually bring you back. And he did. He brought them back. And so Malachi now is writing a couple decades after they've sort of resettled the land, and the people of God are not very excited with where they're at. Read with me in verse, uh, verse 2. The Lord says, I've loved you. Have you loved us? Well, God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All right, what's going on here? Edom is to Israel as Canada is to the U.S. So we like Canadians, right? They're not the same nation as us, but we probably feel a little bit closer to Canadians than we might do Indians. 
That's no offense to Indians here in this room. But they are our brothers, right? They're just north of the border. We have similar heritages, right? And yet, Canada and the U.S. are, are quite different, too. Well, Edom bordered Israel. In fact, Edom, the nation of Edom, came from the same family line as Israel. They both found their father in, uh, in Jacob. Um, and so the Edomites were somewhat God-fearing, somewhat God-reverent, and yet they weren't the chosen people. They weren't God's people. Well, Edom, they too chase idols just like Israel. And God too removed them from the land. And so what God is saying here is, hey, do you remember your brothers, your cousins, the Edomites? Like, their nation is no longer. I've removed them from the land. And I never brought them back. They're gone forever. They say that they're going to come back, but they're not. And what God is trying to fix Israel's eyes on is that God actually fulfilled the promise that he made to them. I'll bring you back. And he did. He did bring them back. And Israel's looking at, after they have returned from Babylon, as they're setting up, resetting up their home, resetting up their nation, is that the temple's not as awesome as it used to look. It's not as glorious as it used to look. The, the walls that surround our cities, Jerusalem, they're not as high or strong as they used to be. Our farmlands aren't as prosperous as it used to be. Our actual territory is but a postage stamp of what it used to be. And they have their minds fixated just in the past, like God hasn't brought them back as he said he would. When rather, what he's saying is, don't you see that I loved you? I didn't bring Edom back, but I did bring you back. I fulfilled my promises. And so this is where Israel's pride gets in the way. And so as we're going to see through Malachi, there's this path of walking in our pride, and there's this path of walking in the prosperity that God has for us. And here, pride's path is a self-centered living. Self-centered living which is a fixation on what I'm owed, what my rights are, and what I deserve. Hey, we're God's people. We deserve better than this. We deserve everything. You know, I expected more. I want more out of life. I want more out of what I thought was coming to me. And they've got this sort of entitled attitude when it comes to their relationship with God. And they're just fixated on their self-centered attitude, and they are missing the love of God. And this is different than the path that God is offering them, which is a path of prosperity. This God-dependent living. God-dependent living is a fixation on the fact that God chose you. Like, God chose you. No matter how you might feel about your life, how you feel like it's going in a moment, the fact is that God plucked you up, not because he saw, thought you were beautiful, not because he thought you were magnificent, not because you deserved it, but because of his own free will choice to choose you and to pull you into his family. And what he's saying is, I could have chose anyone, Israel. I picked you from the beginning. I never left you. I've never forsaken you. I've never forgotten about you. You still exist. Even in the midst of all of your unfaithfulness, I chose you and I stuck with you. Don't you see that? Well, their eyes are fixed on themselves rather than fixed on the promises of God and God's choice over them. And what we're now going to see is that it kind of lends itself in, and this is what we're going to kind of focus on over the next today and in the next two weeks, how does this work out in their worship and followership of God? How is it that they're missing the path of prosperity because they're disillusioned, because they're self-centered, and they're, not, and they're missing the goodness that, they, that God has for them? Well, Malachi continues, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? 
And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Well, by offering food, polluted food, upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so God is now questioning Israel. Hey, if you call me God and Lord, do you honor me as such? If you call me your heavenly father, do you honor me in such a way? Well, not according to the type of gifts and sacrifices that you're giving me. Uh, I'm going to bring my friend Kevin up right now. He's going to help me with a little illustration. Kevin doesn't know what he's getting into here. Give him a round of applause because he's a brave man. There you go, brother. You don't know what's going to happen right now, do you? No, okay. no idea. You know, no idea. So I asked Kevin, I'm going to do something here. And I asked Kevin just to give us his response, okay? Are you ready? Are you got to close your eyes for one second? Okay. Well, 10 seconds. Okay. okay. All right. I got to go back here because I have something hidden. You didn't know there was a secret closet back here, did you? All right, Kevin. This is going to be hard to figure out, but I've got a gift for you, brother. Here you go. Can I open my eyes now? Yeah, you can okay. open your eyes. It's all oh. you. Oh. All right. Open it up. What is it? I'm going to say it's a golf club. You don't know that. Yes, it's a golf club. <laughs> well, why would I get that for you? Because I like to play golf. You love golf, don't you? I do love you golf. You love golf. Yes. Is that, is that a good golf club? It is not. It's, <laughs> it's a really great knockoff, though, so I mean, tailor-made type of famous golf, but that uh, thing's probably from the I 80s. I don't even maybe. know what Dynaflight is, but I don't <laughs> <laughs> something a, you got out of your You can find them at Goodwill. Well, that's yours. So oh, thank you that's, so much. You yeah. gave me everything. I'll take the microphone back. Okay. You gave me everything I wanted. Okay. It's all yours, so. All right, yeah. You just leave this here. I'll clean that up for you. Okay? All right, all right thanks. Everyone give them a round of applause. <laughs> that's yours, man. No, that's a gift. Don't, you don't return gifts. That's like... That's, that's mean. Not all gifts are made the same, are they? No, not all gifts are made the same. I knew Kevin liked golf. I didn't really want to spend that much money. So I went to Goodwill and I spent two bucks. I actually, I thought it'd be funnier if I sawed the head of it off and just gave you half a golf club. But those things are way too saw. I tried. And about 20 minutes in, I'm like, forget that. I'm not trying to saw this thing anymore. So not all gifts are the same. And what God is saying to his people is, just because you bring something doesn't make it good. Just because you bring something to the temple doesn't make it a fitting gift to me. And we can operate with this presumption, right? Well, I'm doing something, God, you should be happy with it. I'm bringing something, God, take it. And really, the wrong gift can actually be more of a burden than a blessing. I mean, Kevin's got to do one of two things with that. I mean, he doesn't want to hurt my feelings, so he's got, to, he's got to throw it away without me seeing it, or else my feelings will get hurt. Or, out of duty of our friendship, he's going to have to hold on to it, because I'm going to ask him in two weeks, hey, have you used that golf club yet? And he can't lie to me by saying I threw it away. He'll have to say, like, no, nah, it's sitting in my garage, 
and I'm just waiting for the time to break it out, right? He's got to say something true to make me still feel good about the gift that I gave him, right? And so, but the fact is that it's just not a good gift. gift. And what's going on here is that entitled attitudes stimulate poor gift giving. When we're self-centered, when we're thinking about what I deserve and what I've earned and what I'm owed, man, it's really hard to give to someone else. It's really hard to give to the Lord what is owed to him when I'm thinking about what I'm not getting. I haven't received enough. I haven't gotten it all. And this is where Israel's at. And so this word polluted means unacceptable. Israel is offering unacceptable gifts, bringing in lame goats, sick sheep, polluted, bad food, and God's calling them out on it. Let's continue. Verse 10. Oh, you know what? I'm reading an abbreviated version of this. Kind of cut it out just for a little bit easier here. So, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is, and you snort at it. What he's saying is, you feel burdened by giving me bad gifts. You come and give me the gifts, and then you complain about how burdensome it is to bring me these sacrifices. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God is defending his own honor amongst his own people. You are my treasured possession. You are the ones that I am revealing myself too. I have chosen you to show myself to you, and you are missing the boat on who I am. I will be worshipped by other nations, and yet you don't worship me. The next thing we can notice about gift giving is that low esteem motivates cheap gift giving. Low esteem motivates cheap gift giving. When we think little of someone, then we're not going to think much of them. Kevin might very well be questioning right now, how much does Nick actually really care about me this is a cruddy gift. He doesn't think much of me. How can he call me friend and give me this gift, right? A poor gift can be more of a burden than really a blessing. This is why God continues to say in this passage, you'll see throughout the book of Malachi, the Lord of hosts. What God is saying is, I am the Lord of all the powers. The Lord of hosts means, I'm the Lord of all the powers. What powers exist? Political powers or financial powers, whatever the power might be, God is in control of all of those powers. He is Lord over all the powers that exist on, on the earth. And if I am the Lord of all that is powerful, then I am the most powerful and I ought to be esteemed in this way. And what he is accusing Israel of, he says, you come and you entreat me. This word entreat means to butter up. You come and butter me up and ask me for favors. Now, this isn't quite, quite match for us because he's saying, hey, if you brought a gift to your governor, and he saw the type of gift you were giving, like, he would not accept this. So why do you think I should? But we don't think that way, right? I mean, like, the governor is where he or she is because I voted for them, right? Like, they owe me. 
They owe me. They made me promises. I voted for them, and they got into. But back in this time, in the ancient time, governors were appointed by the emperor, or the king. So the governor was accountable to the king or the emperor. So as long as they pleased the emperor and the king, it didn't matter how they treated the people. They could do whatever. And so when you're the low man on the totem pole, what do you do? You're going to do whatever you can to kind of get a little bit of favor from the governor because he or she is going to like make you make your life a little bit easier or better. We don't understand that currently, right? We think that the president owes us favors somehow. So I was trying to think of like what's comparable here. So maybe bosses, maybe the work environment. If you own a company, you might be, ah, I think my employees might be a little entitled, but I think it fits. You know, you think Christmas Vacation and Clark Griswold, who's trying to get that bonus check at the end of, this, of the year, right? And it's not coming, and he's in hot water because he put this down payment on the sweet pool, and he's like trying to get the attention of his boss who can never remember his name, and he walks in with this little gift wrapped up, and he says, hey, boss, I brought you this, and he's like, ah, oh, just put it over there with the other ones, and it looks exactly like 30 other gifts that are like square boxes wrapped like this, right? It was an unimpressive gift. It was unnoticeable. The fact is Clark was trying to get noticed that he would get this bonus gift, right? When we want the favor of someone, maybe an employer, we want that raise, we want that bonus, we want to get noticed by them, what are we going to do? We're going to try to get noticed. So I have a friend, his name's Wyatt. He really wanted to work for Tim Tebow. He really, really, really wanted to work for Tim Tebow. He was working for a national, international mission, uh, Josh McDowell Ministry, if you know Josh McDowell. He was working for them and had kind of, you could say, just sort of bumped shoulders with Tim Tebow a little bit at some like conferences and stuff. He didn't know him personally. And he'd heard that Tim Tebow was kind of starting some new ministries. And he's like, man, I want to get in on what Tim Tebow is doing. Man, how can I do that? Well, his work happened to send him to Jacksonville, which is where Tim lives. And so my friend Wyatt's like, I will find out where Tim lives is what I'm going to do. So he somehow found out what Tim's address was. And then he printed his resume on a five-foot board like this. And he delivered it to the front porch of Tim Tebow with a gift in front of it. And he doesn't know Tim. He doesn't even know if Tim's hiring anybody. He's like, I just want to get in with Tim. So he shows up with this giant resume, drops off on Tim Tebow's front porch, and then walks away because Tim was not home. He wasn't expecting Wyatt to show up. Well, a week and a half later, Wyatt gets a call from Tim. And he's like, dude, I've never had anyone do this before. He's like, I had to meet you. Who are you? And so they just start this conversation. Wyatt's like, man, I really, really, really want to work for you. And Tim's like, I don't know if I have a job, but we'll see. Well, they kind of start a texting relationship, and three months later, Tim does have a job, and he's like, hey, why don't you come work for me? And now Wyatt works for Tim Tebow, and he's doing awesome stuff. What did Tim do? He wanted to butter, or what do I do? He wanted to butter Tim up. Notice me. You don't know me from Adam, but let me distinguish myself, right? And what Israel is saying is Israel kind of wants, they want a good life. We all want a good life. We all want a prosperous, blessed life. And what, uh, what God is saying is, look to me. I'm the right one to look at and butter me up. And it doesn't work that way because God wants to give us a good gift, but our attitude ought to be that. We're unworthy. God chose us. And yet, the way they operate, my heart posture operates towards him and the way I give gifts says something about what I recognize him to be and what he can do and provide for me in my life. And so does the way I sacrifice, does the way I give gifts reflect that? There's a great proverb, Proverb 18, that says a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great people. 
A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great people. When we offer gifts to God that are fitting, it brings us into his presence. So our big idea this morning is this. A happy heart produces good gifts. A happy heart produces good gifts. How do we have a happy heart? We have right expectations. Rather than the entitled, me, what I deserve, what I'm owed, I'm chosen by God. He makes promises to me. He delivers on all of his promises, and he has always been faithful to my life. Do I recognize that? Am I operating out of that? When I'm operating out of that, I'm content. I'm fulfilled. I'm satisfied. I'm joyful. And from that place, I then give gifts to God that match his majesty and his greatness. So let's just take a couple of of minutes here and talk about what does this mean for us today? Because right here, we're talking about goats and lambs and priests and the temple, and that's not the way that we worship in the modern New Testament church. And thank God, by the way, because I don't want to slaughter lambs at Covenant Church. That's just not something I want to be doing. There's other things that God asks for us in regards to sacrifice and duty towards him. So let's connect a couple of dots here. Number one, we know in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are all called the royal priesthood, okay? I'm not a priest. Kyle's not a priest. We're pastors. That's different things. One of my uh, girl's friends was like, hey, I heard that you're a priest. I'm like, no, I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. But you are, and you are, and you are, and you are, and I am. We're all priests. The priest was a mediator between the people of Israel who offered their gifts and God who's a recipient. And the priest was responsible for inspecting the gift, If they took in a bad gift, it was on them because they said, hey, your cruddy worship is acceptable. And the priest would say, no, it's not acceptable. So it's not my responsibility or even the elders' responsibility to inspect your gifts or each other's gifts. It's on all of us to hold each other accountable to give good gifts. This is part of accountability within the church, and it's on you. It's on me. We can't escape that. You know, in your subscript, when you say from so-and-so and and you put your job title, you can put underneath there, religious worker, you're a priest. Because we're all in that position. That we hold each other accountable to offer gifts. And the reason we do that is that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the final priest who's a mediator, mediator. And once he came, we now respond, answer our relationship with him. And therefore, we don't need a go-between between us and God. We've got Christ that stands in that place. Well, what about sacrifices? Again, we don't, thank God, slaughter animals anymore. We know in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are living sacrifices. This means the way that I live, how I spend my time, what I do with my energy and my person. You know, I'm glad I don't have to get my uh, hands bloody. But yes, it's now all of me. It's not a set time that I just come and offer sacrifices to God. It's the way that I live. I'm now a living sacrifice. And so what does this look like? As we live life, how does it look to offer gifts and be offering gifts in the way that we live our life? Well, the Bible has a bunch of different places where it actually unpacks this a little bit for us. After Romans 12 is a great place to read. You can also go to Hebrews 13, which I'm going to turn there right now. And there's nothing on the screen, because I just want to point out a couple of different, you can read this on your own, Hebrews 13. But if you turn to Hebrews 13, at least in the ESV, the title that says, Sacrifices Pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, Sacrifices Pleasing to God. So what are some things that he lists here? This is interesting, I think. 
All right, he says, a sacrifice, a gift that you can give to God. Show hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to strangers. When you have new people into your life and into your home, when you have strangers into your home, that's a gift. Bourbon with your buddies is not a gift to God. But meeting someone new in the church and having them over to your house for lunch is a gift to God. Finding someone who's lonely and inviting them into relationship with you is a gift to God. Verse 3, remember those in prison. Remember those who are marginalized. Remember those who are forgotten. Remember it could be pray. It could be visit. It could be write letters. I mean, that's kind of between you and God to figure that out. But don't forget those who are in prison. Don't forget marginalized people. Verse 4, honor the marriage bed. Honor the marriage relationship. When you honor your marriage, you're offering a gift to God. It takes, if you're married, you know it takes real work to honor your marriage. If you're single and you're waiting for your future spouse, you know it takes real work to make sure that your heart is in the right place to honor your future marriage. Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. When you have the opportunity to buy a new car and you forego the really nice expensive car and you say, in order to make sure that my heart is in a place of being materialistic, I'm going to now buy, I don't know, a Honda or a Ford, then you're honoring God with your heart. Now, again, we're not saying something's wrong about buying a Lincoln, right? That's not the point. The point is, what, where's, what are you going to love? Are you going to love that new car and the status that it brings? Or are you going to forego that to make sure that your, part, your heart is in a posture of humility? I mean, he's got more. Remember your leaders in verse 7 and those who preach the word. Don't, those who have preached the word and brought the gospel to you, do not forget them. Sometimes when someone brings us the word and their ministry and stuff like that, over time we kind of become jaded towards them. But we ought to always remember who God has used in our life to bring us into fellowship with him. Remember and honor them. Verse 12, suffer in a way that Jesus suffered. When you suffer well, then that is a, uh, a gift to honor God. Verse 15, continually worship God. Verse 16, don't neglect to do good. Share what you have. When you have something and you share it with someone who has it in need, you're giving a gift to God. Verse 17, we're not going to like this one. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It says it in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them. When we have a submissive spirit to those that God has put over us, we are giving a gift to God. We oftentimes stand in judgment of those who lead us when really we ought to have a posture of submissiveness towards them, of obedience towards them. Why? Because they watch over your souls. They are held accountable for how they lead you, and you're held accountable for how you follow them. And when you follow with a submissive spirit, you're giving a gift, not to them, but to your God. Verse 18, pray for missionaries. There are men and women who are serving all over the world, places where the church is being persecuted, places where their life is in danger, places where they don't experience the abundance that we do. And when we pray for missionaries, those who are preaching the word around the word, around the world, we give gifts to God. So in closing, again, our big idea is this. Out of a happy heart, 
we give good gifts. Right, out of a happy heart, we give good gifts. And so this morning, as we think about closing, and particularly as we think about moving in towards community, it's a time of examination. Because this is what God is asking Israel to do. Examine yourselves. Just because you give it doesn't make it good. Just because you give it and you presume God wants it doesn't mean he really wants it. So what's the quality of your gift giving? What's the quality of the way that you're living your life? Is it on, does it match his honor and his majesty? Does it match what he's done for you and his choice over you and his faithfulness to you, to keep you? Have you been living and honoring God in that way? Is there discontentment in your, your heart? Can you get a little too stuck on your own rights, what you owed and what you deserve? Well, if, tr- if that's true of you, then we need to repent of that. And the word repent means to turn away, to acknowledge that it's a wrong path. We're living in this, this path of selfish pride rather than a God-dependent fixation on the love of Christ and his love of us. So as we take communion this morning, before you approach the table, would you just put your life, your heart before the Lord and just say, examine me. And if there's any way in which I am not honoring you, God, would you bring it to bear? Would you let me know what it is? And then in that place, would you repent of that? And then come forward and receive the communion. Communion, which means not that you make your heart right, not that you cleanse your own heart, your own selfish attitudes, but it's by receiving the bread and the juice which represents the work of Christ on the cross. He broke his body to heal you. He shed his blood to cleanse you. That you now get to this very moment, start new and fresh with him. To see him for who he is in his majesty and in turn to live in such a way as to honor Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.